Welcome to the Energy Environment Economy Podcast, a production of the Environmental Business Council of New England. My name is Anne Geisinger. I'm Executive Director at EBC and your host for today's episode. Here at Energy Environment Economy, we talk about the business of the environment from grid modernization to renewable energy, solid waste management, stormwater, climate adaptation, the list goes on. The energy and environmental industries are in an exciting time, and we are here to explore it all. Today, I'm talking to Jackie Motika and Katie Bland from NIRACUS, which stands for Northeastern Regional Association of Coastal Ocean Observing Systems, which is why we call it NIRACUS instead. Jackie uh, is NIRACUS's strategy director. She's been with NIRACUS since 2012 and oversees the management of the Northeast Ocean Observing System and leads the development of the organization's marine life program. And Katie is the Engagement and Research Associate for NIRACUS and the New Hampshire Sea Grant. She focuses on the needs of each other, each organization's end users and community members, especially in light of offshore wind energy development happening in the region. And um, some fun facts about our guests today. Would love to learn a little bit more about how Jackie was mom to 30 caribou calves <laughs> in Alaska. That sounds like actually a very difficult job and maybe one that is less fun than it sounds like. <laughs> It, it was a lot of fun. So there were 30 uh, caribou calves that were part of a broader research mission and project uh, that we ho- that w- I was a part of at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. And uh, part of our job in those early days was just like a newborn baby. We had to bottle feed them about every three hours. Um, and to try to start to get them used to humans, we used to do things like sit in the stall with them and read them stories um just <laughs> time with them so it was it was one of those very cool dream jobs that you get to be a part of for some time um and it was a lot of fun and a lot of work that summer um but I was with them for two years so it was oh wow was a really great project that's amazing as a current mom to a baby I can attest to the every three hour feeding schedule it is not great <laughs> <laughs> Same. I'm on that at the moment, too. Yeah. <laughs> and Katie just told me that um, a few years ago, she completed the entire Northern Forest Canoe Trail, which sounds amazing, but also quite hard. <laughs> Any fun, notable moments from that trip? How long does it take to complete that? Many notable moments from that trip. Maybe less fun. Um, it took six weeks to do it, uh, 42 days. And I should caveat and say that I didn't complete all of it because it was during the pandemic when oh. the Canadian border was closed. It was a lot of portaging, a lot of upstream paddling, but it was, yeah, definitely uh, the most physically difficult and rewarding thing I've done. So upstream paddling because you couldn't start in Canada and you would normally start there and go downstream or is it? Starting in the Adirondacks and then ending up in Fort Kent, Maine. And so there's a, there's, you know many dozens of different rivers and streams that are going in different directions and so that links them all together sounds exhausting (laughs) well that's great thank you guys both for joining today i really appreciate your time and um look forward to hearing more about niracus so i think we probably need to start with what is niracus um i've learned a little bit about it over the years but let's introduce it to our uh our listeners jackie you want to take that one sure so like you started this whole conversation off, what what NERACU stands for is really long. So we always go by NERACU. You tend to lose people when you when you start with the full title of what we are and who we are. Um, but we're kind of in that same realm of kind of 
large, where did we get our name? So Naracoos is part of the U.S. Integrated Ocean Observing System, or IUS, uh, which is a 17-agency federal partnership um, across lots of different federal partnerships. It resides within NOAA, though. And regionally, there are organizations set up like Naracoos that cover all of the U.S. Great Lakes and coasts. And we're designed that way so that we can really dig into the regional needs of those that are in our communities and create and distribute uh, an observing system that meets those needs and are tailored towards those. So um, in the Northeast, uh, we we support a number of buoys, oceanographic models, as well as water level sensors and a data management system where all of this data goes and is accessible for anybody to use and to integrate into any of their products, tools, or information needs. So you're funded federally? We are funded federally, but we are a nonprofit organization. So we're really in a unique position where we are federally supported. We are able to compete for additional resources from other federal sources, but we also can partner with non-federal to really help to create that kind of the linkages between the federal system and the private sector. And so is that the system for all 17 of the different observing organizations? Are they all nonprofits that are federally funded but are allowed to do or have access to some other grant opportunities and things like that? Each region is set up a little bit differently. Many of them are nonprofit organizations. A number of them also operate within state universities. That makes sense. That's a lot of great uh, opportunity to work with within the university system, but get a lot of funding through there too. So that makes a lot of sense. Who is using this data? I assume it's a lot of data. Um, how are they using it? Yeah, you're right. It is a lot of data and a lot of users and uses. There's a lot of people that seek out the data and know they're using it. But I think maybe the cooler part, in my opinion, because I didn't know that I was using the data beforehand, before joining Nericus, is that a lot of the public relies on this data but doesn't know it. People that do know about it mostly are mariners, recreational and commercial fishers. Some people have their favorite buoy offshore and they'll have have coffee with that buoy just to check the morning conditions. <laughs> okay. um, there's scientists that look at the 18-year data sets for some buoys to be able to understand climate trends. There's resource managers that are looking at, you know, the colonist index, for example, and emergency responders that are using the data that feeds into their models for search and rescue, for example. But then the, the general public also is using it without really realizing it. So, for example, on Surfline, you know, there's these uh, forecasts for what the waves are going to be. And all of those models for the waves, um, they have the data that feeds into them that Naracus is collecting through the different oper operators around the region. Um, and if you scroll way down to the bottom, you can see buoy A or buoy B nearby. And you know, sailors, if they're going to any of those apps like Windy or Predict Wind, those are also integrating the data. And so like Jackie said, um, because it's we're publicly, publicly funded, the data is publicly served. So anyone can hold down this data and use it in their apps. And so it kind of takes on a life of its own in the best way. That's really cool. 
I heard you say 18-year data for a buoy. Is that the length of time we've been ocean observing? Or do you have longer data sets that have been collected over more years? I might let Jackie take that one because I know we have buoys that have been collecting for at least 18 years, but there are longer data sets. Yeah, Jackie, go ahead. Sure. So uh, it's not a very straightforward question, and I wish it was. So some of the buoys that we help to support that are operated by like the University of Maine, for instance, some of those buoys have been out since 2001. So Naracus was founded in 2009, but there were already monitoring groups at universities that were in existence. What Naracus did was kind of tried to bring them together into an integrated system that looks collectively at the regional need. And so a number of those data sets are around 20 years, which is really cool. And what's unique about a lot of these is that we're collecting the sea state information at the surface for like the surfing conditions, the boating conditions, but also the water column. So it's really providing that that record, that climatological record of really what's happening below the surface for where all the animals are. I think the climatological record is really interesting to note. 20 years is sort of long in a human lifespan, but not long overall. So hopefully this these buoys and everything will be there for years to come and be able to refer back to a 2001 start time, sounds like. So there's not much older data than that that Nirkus is involved with in terms of the buoys, de- buoys deployed that you are part of. In terms of the in-situ observations, that's correct. I think that there are some, there's some modeling work that we're a part of that looks at hindcast, then those are publicly available that go back to the 70s. Um, there's also some biological work that we've recently taken on to continue some time series that goes back um, farther than that. So I think it, it's kind of piecemeal throughout the region, but ultimately our goal is to do our best to sustain these long-term data sets that people really yeah. depend on. That's great. Cool. So what are the, are there some specific uh, places where the data is being used? I know one of them uh, could be for offshore wind development. Maybe another one of them is obviously for fisheries, maybe um, certainly for those who are doing the actual fishing, but is some of this related to you know, biological work with fish species and things like that? Are there other kind of niche areas that are heavily using this data? I think there's a lot of niche areas that are using this data. And I think there's a lot, you know, if we're mostly a foundational piece of what we do is collect mid-ocean data, and those can serve as environmental covariates in any number of specialties that, you know, fisheries management, wildlife conservation, and with offshore wind specifically, we're trying to think um, a little bit more holistically about how all of these different uses for oceanographic data can be you know, integrated into one system so that as offshore wind is being developed, the kind of the amount of uncertainty that is implicit in this new industry, um, you know, we can have more data to move forward and make better decisions. So we've kind of been thinking about it in um, five different categories and priorities like navigation, safety, uh, marine pollution, fisheries management, wildlife conservation, and climate science. And, you know, there's all these existing offshore uses. And as a new industry comes, um, we think, you know, having more data offshore, whether that's biological, uh, med-ocean, um, it 
is really kind of necessary for figuring out how to move forward in the most sustainable way. And for those who don't know what MetOcean is, can you explain that? MetOcean is a meteorological and oceanographic. So say a buoy is on the surface and it's collecting surface wind speeds and temperatures. And then it also has sensors below the sea surface that are collecting any number of variables. Got it. Great. Uh, offshore wind development is obviously huge in this region right now, and it's going to span you know north to south, the full region. So are the developers going to be relying on existing buoys? Are we adding new buoys? How are, how are you guys interacting with them um, to sort of move that uh, pro- all those projects forward? Yes, <laughs> to all of it. Yeah, there's, um, you know, there's reliance, re- reliance on the existing assets that are out in the water. Um, there's also new assets that like that developers are required to put in. And yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting time because, you know, some of the data sets that have been going for 18 years are having trouble being funded. And then at the same time, there's going to be new assets put out there. So yeah, it's kind of like a, a big puzzle to figure out the best way to move forward through this. Mm, that's really interesting. So the funding streams for some of the buoys are struggling, but you've got a lot of users who are using it constantly. So balancing the needs of everyone with the reality that somebody's got to take care of, manage these buoys out there. What 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 is required, um, Jackie, in the maintenance of the array of stuff you've got out there in the ocean sure so yeah it's a really like katie said it's an interesting puzzle so a lot of people depend on this information which is great right that's why we exist that's why we're there that's why we put these out assets out there um i think that there's an assumption when they're out there and they've been out there for so long that people are like well they're they're out there of course they're out there you know in in there isn't that thought of wait they, they cost a lot of money to have out there and to keep monitoring so we provide resources to generally academic teams that deploy these assets, not always, um, but generally a lot of our assets do go through university systems. In the Gulf of Maine, I'm going to use them as just kind of a use case. So for each buoy that's out in the ocean, there's a second one that exists on campus that's in kind of a state of refurbishment. So every sensor that's out in the ocean is also currently on campus being refurbished and those cycle uh, with each other. So while one is being deployed, another one's being fixed and then they, it's called a turnaround, buoy turnaround. They used to do those twice a year to make sure that the sensors were all cleaned up. There's a lot of biofouling that occurs in the sensors that makes the data not as reliable or if uh, the communication comes down to just fix problems. That doesn't really happen now. We're stretching those out to about once a year um, just because of costs of everything have gone out, uh, gone up, excuse me. And I think also when these buoys were deployed 20 years ago, they were deployed at this, they were the height of the state of the art technology. And they're really, they're still there. It's incredible that they're still operating the way that they are when they're deployed. They're typically expected to have a, a lifespan of about 10 years and, and they're reaching 20. So I think it really speaks to the the excellence and the work that our teams are doing behind the scenes to keep these running. But there's also, and there's also a lot of new needs and new opportunities to think about what we're currently monitoring, how we could streamline and make them, you know, better. So it's, um, 
it's kind of that constant struggle. And like Katie said, for a long time, just keeping the lights on has been challenging. Our, our core support is congressionally appropriated. And thanks to Congress, we have been able to continue to slowly grow support, which is really phenomenal. Um, we're very thankful for that. And also the system has a lot of needs. And I would say also sensors, as they come closer to shore where more people are, they require more hands-on work because the water is warmer. There's more biofouling that can occur. There's potential for more ship strikes. So the work varies based on the location and the type of instrument and data that it provides. And just a brief technical question. How is it communicating the data? Satellite? What? Generally satellite. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it, it varies. Um, just like everything in some of the closer to closer to shore stations, you can use cellular data, but generally it's satellite. So you've got a lot of assets out in the water. Um, you've got a lot of things going on in the water. And um, how, and, and then the data is free, right? So nobody has to pay for it. Do you have your own research arm or are you simply a data provider and, and you always, the research comes to you? How does that work when it comes to some of the data collected? Are you using it yourselves or are you always just providing it as a service? Who wants to answer? Wait, let's see who takes it. <laughs> um, I can start and then how about Katie, you can expand if there's anything that you would like to add. Um, I think generally we are providing that information. I think that the role that we play is to really work with our stakeholders to understand what they need and then to do our best to implement an observing system that does that and also make that data available and products available that make it more translatable to what that means based on these needs. I will say that there are some research projects that we're a part of. But I think generally we try to focus more on the providing data and that translation piece than the actual research component. Yeah. And I'll just add on that a couple of years ago, Naracus had an intern that put together, kind of compiled who outside of Naracus was using this data. And about 325 publications had referenced Naracus data, used it as a, you know, covariates or straight those data sets directly. So I think that's pretty awesome. Oh, that's really cool. That's great. So pivoting back to the offshore wind discussion. So what what does NIRCU see as a good way to move forward with this brand new industry that's that's cropped up in the region in terms of the data and, and the buoys and information? Well Jackie referenced earlier that, you know, we're we kind of are a little more nimble and we work between agencies and end users and industry and public sector and private sector. And so I think a good way to move forward as we're trying to do right now is to understand the different needs of all of those groups and to do a little bit of kind of matchmaking of different ways that um, ocean observing can meet those needs. And so it might, you know, as we talked about, funding is an issue. So it might end up being public-private partnership, but hopefully it can be done in a coordinated way so that there's not hundreds of new things in the water. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I gather that the, these offshore wind um, installations are going to need quite a bit of monitoring during construction. They need to monitor for all kinds of things. I know that there's a big contingent of folks who are really concerned about, you know, fish species, the, the marine mammals that are in the area. And so 
there are a lot of interested parties, but perhaps a dearth of information at the moment. I'm sure there are some buoys out in those waters, but it seems like there might need to be more. It has, is, there, is there a call for more information to be um, gathered? Yeah, yeah, there's quite a call. I mean, a lot of researchers in the region um, have recognized that to be to be able to say if there's effects from offshore wind, you need to have baseline data and you need to have continuous data. So I think really coastwide, nationwide, people are recognizing that more data is needed and it's just figuring out how to get that out into the water in an efficient way, timely matter, so you can have a good amount of baseline information, how to sustain that into the future. So it's not just a, a one-year deployment and then it's taken out of the water. Yeah, I think that's one of the things we're trying to focus on is how to have these sustained observations so it can live for the life of offshore wind. Is there any regulatory push for requiring certain amounts of data to be collected, therefore requiring there to be additional resources in the water? Or is it really just on the goodness of the developer to start collecting this data? There's definitely regulatory pushes. I mean, each of the developers has to do a site assessment plan and construction and operations plans. And when agencies okay those plans, they say, okay, you have to you know, do this amount of monitoring that you said you would do, and you have to coordinate with this group for how it's going to be done. So there is a lot of good work already being done and a lot of push to have more data. And a lot of the developers are, you know, uh, champions of trying to make this work. But still a lot of unknowns because we really only have that one offshore wind installation so far off of Block Island. Vineyard wind is underway, but I, I it's not completed yet. And then there's a bunch of other lease areas that haven't gotten started yet. So it's very much um, nascent. Yeah. <laughs> um, so but but messy too. <laughs> yeah, hopefully we can figure out the right way forward here on the East Coast and right, a um, bit of a groundwork, lay the groundwork for the rest of the nation. Sort of the last question then on that is, what is the future for New York Hughes, Jackie? What what does the future hold for the organization as the uh, strategy director? The good news is, is that we're growing um, and we've received some new support um, in the past year and we're expecting new funding as well thanks to contributions from the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law and the Inflation Reduction Act. So it's a real opportunity for us to, um, I think, partner with our collaborators, to work with those in the community, to really um, to grow, modernize our system and adapt to the the growing needs of climate change that we have here in the region um, and expand the work that we're doing. Um, we're working a lot with the coastal communities in how they monitor their coastal environments and we'll be deploying um, a series of low-cost water sensors throughout the region. And we are also working kind of in the pelagic biological world to integrate and make available more plankton data. And so why that's so interesting and kind of foundational is just at the bottom of the food web. So it connects right up to forage fish and whales and seabirds. So it really helps to provide some of that kind of just ecosystem uh, awareness and availability of the data. Because the data is really complex and messy once you start getting into biology. So that's something new that we're taking on that we're really excited about. And then also, how does that plankton data relate to the world of acoustic sound monitoring? 
Um, that's something that we will be a part of more moving forward and really trying to organize the regional collaboration around that, as well as thinking about our baseline metrics. So beyond just, so there's, of course, whale and fish detections. There's also anthropogenic sound. There's precipitation. There's there's so many things that we can pull from that acoustic monitoring. So thinking about that more holistically to try to determine and anal- to determine baselines and analyze those to what it can tell us about our environment. Wonderful. Bright future, many new things. I love the idea of krill monitoring or plankton monitoring or whatever that is. I think that that's kind of a, a cool little side track amount of data that could be really informational for a lot of folks who are interested in the biological um, aspect of ocean monitoring. I can imagine seeing like, oh, the plankton count is really low now. What's going on? Is it, you know, the oceans are warming, things are moving around. Seems like a really cool project. So thank you both for joining and for talking about Nearcoos and our ocean observing system here in the Northeast. I do like to finish the episode with a question for you both. So what is capturing your attention this week? And it can be anything at all. So Katie, why don't you get us started? One of the things that's capturing my attention is uh, reconnecting with old teammates. Uh, we just, I just came back from the 50th reunion of Cornell Ultimate. Um, so it was really awesome to see 50 different, 50 years of Ultimate players and reconnect with people I haven't seen in a long time. Uh, sounds like a fun, a fun time. Jackie, what's been capturing your attention this week? Okay. So I think uh, all things in my world lately are there's a lot of really cool work projects um, and thinking about our marine biodiversity network here in the Northeast and what that is. And I think once my work hack comes off, I think just uh, being a professional woman and mom and balancing that, I think, you know, just uh, balancing those two needs and important parts of our life. Well, again, thank you both for joining. I really appreciate your time um, and your willingness to coordinate around nap schedules. We will link lots of things in the show notes for everyone to read more about. And uh, I appreciate you both. Thank you very much. Thank you so much thank for you. having us.